This episode of In Good Company is brought to you by Story, a new type of workspace providing personalised and flexible working environments for ambitious businesses in great locations around central London. Story's nimble approach gives you lots of flexibility around the size of your office, how long you have it for, and how it looks. They work with you to give your office the look and feel you want so your brand stands out. Partnering with award-winning architects and designers, Story works with you to customise your office's layout and design to help optimise your work environment. Story also own and manage all of their buildings so they can take care of everything for you with a single point of contact and online help desk for your convenience. With over 7 million square feet of office space across London, Story is agile enough to help when your company is ready to expand. There's also a great opportunity to connect with a whole network of businesses with similar interests and goals to yours. To check them out for yourself, head to www.story.co.uk. That's S-T-O-R-E-Y.co.uk. Or click the link in our show notes. Thank you very much to Story. Hello and welcome back to In Good Company, a podcast for working women with me, Otega Uagba. On today's show, I'm in conversation with Kate Hamilton and Emily Ames, co-founders of content and communications agency Sonder and Tell. After working together for five years at travel magazine Suitcase, Kate is editor-in-chief and Emily is content director of Suitcase's media agency. Two years ago, the pair decided to set up their own agency, working with brands to help them craft their messaging and figure out how best to talk to their consumers. Since then, they've worked with clients that range from food startups to sexual education apps. And earlier this year, they published an anthology of essays by some of the UK's leading female writers in conjunction with fashion brand Jigsaw. On this episode, they share vital tips for brands trying to figure out how to do content properly, addressing everything from the importance of creating a strong brand narrative and how to do that, to why so many brands seem to keep getting it wrong. Plus, find out what to expect when it comes to getting a service-based business off the ground as Kate and Emily share what they've learned about business development, setting their rates, and figuring out which clients and projects are going to be more trouble than they're worth. Here they are. So basically, we kind of believe that a really good place for brands to start is creating an editorial story, which kind of sums up what you're about. And so we go through this whole process with brands to figure out like who their target audience are, what their USPs are. Have you heard of like what, how, why? I have, but people listening might not have. Yeah, so every story basically has like what you are, so your product or your service, how you do it. Is it direct to consumer? Do you have, you know, a beautiful factory in Italy where you make your clothes? And then there's a why. So kind of the wider purpose of why you exist. It's basically what a lot of people are talking about nowadays. And we basically weave those three things into an editorial brand narrative, which basically sums up your whole company in kind of 300 to 400 words. Obviously, that then we use that as like a starting point. And then that brand story is kind of what you tell your customers at kind of every different point of your brand. As a consumer, you'd never probably see the whole internal document like that. It's more something that aligns people internally so that everyone on a team knows where the brand's going, what the kind of creative concept is and what the vision is. But you would see kind of 
bits of it. The whole point is that it should be woven through things like Instagram captions, or I guess the biggest space would be on an About Us page on a website, but it should be threaded through different touch points. So it could be social, could be a newsletter, could be blog content as well. I feel like there's a real focus on this side of things these days. I don't remember brands focusing on brand narratives or brand Mm, stories like 10 years ago, but Mm. now it feels quite trendy. Why do you think that is? So there's like an actual scientific reasoning behind storytelling, which I kind of feel like has come later. But there's this whole idea that when you're telling a story, you're awakening different parts of your brain. We retain 70% of information through stories and only 10% from data. So when you are telling a story, say you just say, these are some headphones, they have really good quality sound. Your brain, the only part which is really working is the bit which turns like language into meaning. Whereas if you start talking about the way that it sounds, the movement within that, that you start dancing to it, the way that it makes you feel, it's basically like lighting up different parts of your brain, which then associate that emotion with that brand. So it's just how you process information. But I think to answer your question, as in why now people are focusing on, or brands are focusing on storytelling too much, I think it is because there's just so many words out there and so much content that there's an awareness now that in order to kind of cut through a lot of that noise, you're going to have to talk about something other than just how great your product is. So it's kind of partly about creating a culture and a narrative and a mood and addressing an audience in a way that resonates with them beyond just saying like, you know, our hotel is good because of X or you should drink this drink because of Y. So it's more about kind of creating value and an experience and a narrative around the brand and kind of creating equity in that way. What's interesting though is that a lot of brands, I feel like older brands are trying to catch up with that storytelling thing. So you're kind of trying to retrofit a story around a brand that has existed because everyone's saying, oh, you've, you've got to have great content or you've got to have a great story or you've got to do this. And I think a lot of brands didn't have that sort of purpose, that sort of reason why they existed beyond like, we just wanted to start another high street brand. Whereas mm-hmm. now a lot of those older brands are trying to, you know, they're doing storytelling workshops and they're doing content platforms and they kind of are trying to figure it out backwards whereas a lot of new brands at the moment they know that they need a reason beyond the product to exist because they need to align with their customers through values and ethics and all of this stuff which a lot of the older brands don't have or they're just you know sticking a blog on their website and being like right content's done that's our storytelling rather than kind of weaving it through the whole fabric of what they're creating and actually that is kind of why we wanted to start Sondra and Tell in the first place is because I think we were seeing lots of brands creating quote unquote I'm doing air quotes right now content but not actually thinking about what their unique narrative was or what their tone of voice should be or actually the language in which their customers wanted to be spoken to so it was kind of this very much like oh yeah, stick it there and hope that people see it. Whereas we wanted to think about content in a more, I guess, journalistic way because of our editorial background. So asking questions first, taking it back to like, actually, what's the unique viewpoint? What's almost the scoop here? What's the angle we're going for before you then? So having like a really solid foundation and then creating words and stories from that rather than what Emily was saying is like having stories and then retrofitting it afterwards. And I feel like also something that brands need to watch out for and be careful of is that people are getting sick of content, if that Mm. makes sense. Or there's, I feel like there's a real fatigue amongst consumers around content in quotation marks and especially branded content. Why do you think that is? 
I think it's because they haven't almost, I think a lot of brands haven't done that internal work of kind of thinking about what do we actually have a point of view on? Where can we add value to people's lives? So for example, International Women's Day, you've got every single brand, no matter if they've got 10 men and one woman hired on the team, they're all doing content around the most inspirational women in the world. Whereas every brand doesn't need to say something on every single occasion or every have an opinion on any, everything. You talk a lot about that in sort of newsletters and stuff about being able to say, I don't know, or I don't have an opinion on this. And I feel like the same applies for brands. It's figuring out what your target audience really cares about and then having a point of view on that, but not trying to kind of inundate everyone with mm. content about things that don't necessarily work with your brand yeah I guess it's figuring out where you should weigh in and on what subjects and figuring out if you're going to be trying to educate people or entertain them I think you always have to be doing one of those two things with content if you're not doing that then you're just adding to the noise because people's attention spans are not great and we're just bombarded with words all the time so if you're not actually hitting people with something that they're going to learn from or that's going to make them laugh or whatever then it's just kind of this I don't know, white noise type effect. And I mean, even the word content has become a bit ridiculous now. You know, it is like white hashtag content. And we were interviewed a while ago for the FT, Lou Stoppard did an article on content. It was kind of about this ridiculous, like tumbleweed effect of it's just like content about content about content. I don't mind reading branded content if it's helpful, mm. if it actually improves my life in some way. Like a brand that I think, or an editorial platform I think does it really well is Man Repeller, for instance, yeah. who... Half the time I don't even realise that they're working with like sponsors on their content. Like mm. I'm just reading an article and I'm like, oh yeah, okay, it's sponsored, but it's also a really interesting article that I would share and read and enjoy anyway. And I think that's the best way of doing it. But I think all too often, like you say, brands just feel like they need to say something mm. just to be mm. part of a conversation, regardless of whether it's actually adding any value. Yeah, um, you see it around food brands so much. There's like, because there's different food days. So there's like International Burger Day. There's like International Samosa <laughs> Day, all this stuff. And it's like, you don't have to celebrate every single day just because you're in the food industry. So <laughs> yeah, I've definitely seen that. Yeah. Um, it's just a PR tool. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, we actually celebrated. <laughs> I did Veganuary. We both did it this year. Cute. And then people were like, you know, that was literally just a PR stunt. Like, yeah, we're victims of our own. It was. Own world, it but was. Whatever. Are there any examples of brands that you think are doing things particularly well in this space when it comes to storytelling or content and branded content? Mm. One brand we always come back to is The Wing. Mm. I think they just know their audience so well. Mm. They talk to their audience in a way that they speak to one another and they have created such a strong culture around their brand. And I think their tone of voice just is in every single touch point of their brand. So you know when you're getting a newsletter from them, you know as soon as you see a caption on Instagram, you know it's from them. And it's not necessarily just on a blog. It's not just in the spaces. It's like every single touch point, that voice comes through. I think from kind of a more like nerdier attention to language point of view, we also mentioned Monzo a lot. So they're telling stories. But for me, 
a lot of their brand equity has been created around their tone of voice. They're a challenger bank, essentially. They knew they were challenging like the Lloyds and the Barclays and figured out that people don't want to be necessarily spoken to in this really serious way the whole time, even though, you know, money is a serious issue. But they made this kind of really accessible, friendly tone of voice, things like using emojis and within the app. But they've made sure that it's threaded through everything. So they've got that. But then if you go into your overdraft, for example, on them, they'll send you an email being like, hey, you owe us some money rather than like, legally you are in trouble or whatever and like <laughs> underlining. So I think they're very good at just having this real consistency across the whole brand. And they've actually got, which I f- is a really interesting hire from them. They've hired a kind of head of words whose job it is to like make sure the language is really consistent and codified into every part of the business. So he sits down with the lawyers and he sits down with the customer service people and he sits down with HR and makes sure that everyone kind of speaks, not in a kind of creepy robotic way, but in the sense that they have recognised that language is important and that it has a lot of impact in the brand. What are the kind of common mistakes you see brands making when it comes to their sort of storytelling strategy and content approach? Where do people tend to mess up most? I think one of the first ones that we always kind of encounter is thinking that your target audience is a lot bigger and broader than it actually is and I think we always say if you talk to everyone you'll talk to no one so kind of really drilling down into who your target audience is and kind of obviously demographics are important but actually it's way more about psychographics now and kind of understanding their mentality kind of things that piss them off we go through like all of these different questions around target audience but I think a lot of clients think that especially for smaller brands who haven't actually done like really in-depth research into who would buy their product and don't have the money to invest it in that I think a lot of people think that their target audience could be a lot bigger and we don't (laughs) want to exclude anyone because we want it to be a mass market product or whatever and we always say especially for startups you need to get that first initial audience speak to them understand how they communicate, understand how they tell stories, understand what stories they want to hear and focus on them first. And I think sometimes that scares people. I think another thing, especially with kind of earlier stage brands or startups, is people often focus their brand story on the founder of the business. Mm-hmm. So for women who, obviously, that makes sense because you're so front and center of it. But say, if but it's, actually, it's something that I want to do less yeah, of, yeah. and I think there can be real a real danger. Yeah, yeah. even people like name their. We worked with someone the other day and they'd named their brand after themselves, but then they said they didn't want to be at the front and center of it. So it's thinking about... Because sometimes, I mean, the founder story is often relevant, but sometimes it's not the most interesting proposition for consumers. And you can run into problems later down the line when you're like, actually, I want to have a degree of separation from this. Maybe I want to bring someone on and maybe I want to step back. And, you know, if your name's attached to everything, there's this other level of kind of anxiety and even things like writing an Instagram caption if you've named your brand after yourself or you're at the centre of it become end up becoming so much more personal I think people are again fatigued with that Mm, founder story and actually sometimes it's like I don't really need a founder story I just need a product that works really well and is different and that's speaking to me yeah we speak quite a lot about trying to make the customer the hero of your story so say with women who if you're doing it it would be about the working women being the hero rather than you and that kind of Mm, thing yeah definitely I think the other thing and a mistake that people make is so we always say every company needs a why every story needs a purpose all of that type stuff but I think sometimes because that purpose-driven company has become so 
sort of prolific and everyone's talking about having a purpose, sometimes people inflate their purpose quite a lot. And at the end of the day, like if you're a clothes company, you know, you're a sustainable clothes company, fine, but you're not changing the way that people experience clothes because you're still sort of feeding that desire for people to be buying clothes. Or if you're you know, it's all, again, around the women thing. It's like every brand is now for women's mm. empowerment. And it's like, actually, consumers now, because there's so much around purpose-driven brands, are becoming smarter and smarter to that. Mm. So actually, if you are a company, so we worked with a handbag rental, so sort of like Rent the Runway, but mm. designer handbags called Cocoon. And obviously, they are part of this changing landscape where people are renting, not buying. But we were like, at the at the core of it, you're a club for people that really like handbags. You're not changing the whole sort of... You're not saving the world, basically. You're not saving the world through handbags. And they really got that. And that was... But I think sometimes brands kind of want their purpose to be a lot grander than it actually is. <laughs> Completely. And I remember when I was working in advertising, and it was about five years ago, where all of a sudden everybody was talking about building brands with purpose and purpose-driven brands and what's our noble purpose. I think that was the question that we had to ask of like, of like every brand. And sometimes it was like, you're a soft drinks brand. Like, there is nothing yeah. here. Or you're mm. a brand that actually probably isn't that great for people, so don't try and pretend to be something other than you're not. I think that's another thing with sort of consumer fatigue Mm. where people are noticing that there is this trend and this narrative Mm. and if you try and emulate what everyone else is doing again it kind of tends to fall on deaf ears I want to go back a little bit and talk about the origins of Sondra and Tell because what so what were you two both doing before setting up Sondra and Tell so we were both at a travel magazine called Suitcase together and we were there for five years in total. So I was editor-in-chief of the magazine there, mainly looking after the print. And Emily was content director. Yeah, or brand so I was brand then- director of Suitcase and then Suitcase opened its own content agency. And so that's working with brands? On yeah, the- in the travel space. Yeah, so it's hotels mainly. And so, yeah, I then opened that with the team at Suitcase as content director. So that's kind of when we started. We'd been thinking about starting our own thing for a while. It actually weirdly started as we wanted to do something in PR. Oh yeah, we basically got bored of being sent terrible press releases <laughs> um, with things like, I don't know, National Dog Food Day in the title. So I was like, we work at a travel magazine. That's just annoying. So yeah, we thought we could do a really great PR agency and then realized that actually kind of content was the way things were moving anyway. And a lot of PR companies are now creating content arms. So we kind of thought, let's just sidestep the sort of media outreach and lots of breakfasts. And we're like, (laughs) let's do the let's do the content arm of that. And then we can always kind of partner with PRs and that type of stuff. But ours, we basically came up with the idea because we saw this speaking to a few clients. Everyone was suddenly obsessed with content, Mm -hmm. like became this kind of hysterical (laughs) word that everyone was like we need to do content Mm -hmm. and we're kind of skipping to that stage of creating magazines creating blogs creating all these newsletters and not thinking about kind of who they were talking to what the tone of voice was what the personality is what they were going to be having a point of view on and on the other side of it there's also this very kind of tech data-driven content seo seo content-driven side of that where you can be doing lots of keywords and you're trying to shove in keywords to your blogs to get you up on Google or the other side of it was more kind of freelance journalists that were 
just writing content but not necessarily doing the strategy. So we were like, can we just marry the strategy with the storytelling Mm -hmm. and start something a bit different? Mm -hmm. And making sure that we were asking questions about a brand's narrative and their tone of voice and things before actually jumping to create these kind of editorial platforms for brands. And so from when you had the idea to actually getting things off the ground, like, you know, you decided to start your own agency. What did that process look like? What were the first few things that you Mm. did? Because we've been a services-based agency, we put in a little bit of money at the beginning to get the website set up, which was 4,000. And that actually took us ages, though, to get the website right. And I think we felt like we wanted to invest quite a lot in that because we felt like we had to practice what we were going to preach in terms of storytelling and making sure messaging and everything came out really clearly. Mm-hmm. Then we came up with a kind of, ed- which we'll speak more about, I guess, but the editorial platform. So kind of interviewing different storytellers, which we have on our blog now about the kind of stories that inspire them. Cause we knew we wanted to be an agency that had something else than just kind of services essentially. So we started doing that as well. And then I can't, who was our first client? Good um, no, Joro, that travel. Oh, yeah. yeah. A was travel. actually a travel brand, it was, um, it was completely on. Through, like, an old friend who'd started something. Yeah. So we actually had a couple of friends who were starting businesses. So we kind of practised our offering as a pro bono thing to make sure we were comfortable with what we were doing early on. And then our first client was a travel brand. But because we've been service-based and haven't had an office until now, we were kind of profitable from the first person that we had on. So... Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. But in terms of, I want to dig a bit more into getting those first few clients to yeah. your door and actually getting people to kind of sign with you. Because, you know, you started a new agency mm. for the first couple of months before I remember you didn't actually have a website. No, mm. yeah. Because you were already operating yeah. before you had the website. You don't have a track record because mm. under the name Sonder and Tell. Yeah. You don't have old clients from where you were working before. Mm. So how did you get those first few clients? How did you convince people to sign with you and part cash for your services? We did a lot of cold emailing, which actually didn't really work, to be honest. Especially when we didn't have a website, because it was just like, where's any trace of you at all? Yeah. Yeah. I think ours was basically word of mouth. It just so happened that a lot of people at that time... I think it's maybe our age was starting their own really small businesses. And so we started really small, like a friend that we knew was starting a travel company. And so we worked with them and they didn't pay us very much, but we worked with them on their story. And then they would tell their friends that we are so it's very, very much word of mouth. And I think still to this day, two years on, even when we try cold email people, it doesn't really Mm. work for us it's much more based on like having worked with someone and they've kind of told someone else about us or we've been part of even Mm. going to your events or going to other people's events where there are all these people that want to start businesses Mm. just going and like having conversations with people trying to introduce ourselves as a new storytelling agency but it was really hard I'd say we only well good hemp what came about six months in was it which was offered who we still have now on as a retainer client Mm. um so it took a while to build up to something that felt like it was substantial and that was going to be more long term it was a lot of quite bitty projects Mm. at the beginning which was stressful in that the cash flow was super up and down but in a way because it was always new projects and ideas, we did get to figure out what actually we were good at doing mm. or what we liked doing and like kind of honing our offering a bit more. But it's only now really, and even in the last, I'd say since June, I don't know what the flip is, but we're actually getting quite a lot of inbound stuff as well. We actually want to make more time to pitch out things, but it's now more people who are hearing about us and getting in touch through that way, which is really nice as well. It's but. really hard though with that beginning phase because 
part of you just wants to do anything because there's always someone starting a business like around Mm. you can go to an event and meet someone but it's whether you do that for free or you kind of know your value from the beginning Mm. and try to set those standards from early on can you then increase your prices because the thing is is once you start to do if you do one thing for a hundred pounds that person is then going to tell the next person oh that person will do it for a hundred pounds so it's really difficult when you start especially service-based stuff it's really difficult knowing where to set yourself in those Mm -hmm. and what did you guys do how did you approach that we actually I think right at the beginning we did like we had a few friends and kind of friends of friends that were starting businesses we always charged I think we did it for my sister for free yeah we did Um, But we, we always... had a rate card from an agency, which we were like, well, we're going to obviously have to be undercutting this because we don't have these overheads and we're small. So we kind of went below that and then tried that for a bit. Have your rates changed as, as things have gone on or have they kind of stayed roughly the I same? I think, no, they have gone up a bit. I think we wouldn't. I guess it's just like we, we would have negotiated. with the same rate though. So we'd always yeah. start. So we'd always say, this is what our rate is. And that's really difficult to do when you're starting something because you have such imposter syndrome yeah. about saying that that's what you're worth. But we always started with that rate mm-hmm. because we knew that obviously they'd try to undercut, undercut yeah. us yeah, and keep but we needed them to know that that was the so that we could always go back to that when we then went to the next client and you do you yeah. know what I mean so yeah, it's yeah. not having that because as now, soon as someone knows your rate is 200 then the next person will be like oh well they did it for 200 so if you just start with 500 for example mm-hmm. you might say you're doing that because you really align with this company's values and that's why you're doing it for a lesser rate or something Kate's really good at just being like this is our rate this is how much and I'm like oh let's just I think is way too much it's way too much so it's having that I really struggle with like saying email me guys yeah (laughs) (laughs) what's um and what have you learned because you mentioned just now you want to make more time for pitching and I'm sure Mm. obviously as like a new business you were obviously it's great that lots of things are coming in inbound now but what have you learned in terms of not just best practice for pitching, but what Mm. sorts of jobs to put yourself forward for, because not all new business is good business. And I think especially when you're kind of a small fledgling Mm. agency, you can get a lot of people trying to take advantage of you and all sorts of things. So I was just wondering how you found the process of pitching for new business and what you've learned to do differently. So we've actually not done that many kind of big pitches, I don't think, have we, in terms of like actually, I guess it's knowing how much of your ideas to give early on. So we normally would send a kind of proposal with a few creative ideas and then ask for it to be signed off or have a kind of conversation where we then go in and build it out a little bit more. Mm. I think though we learned really early on, even just like first emails with people, language to kind of look out for Mm. when you're pitching to people for us it was always when people kind of approached us to write a 200-word SEO-focused article for their blog would be like the initial outreach email. And we would kind of know that the way that they approach content is not how we approach content or the way they approach storytelling, which kind of applies to a lot of different things. Like if you're in a design agency, someone that just says, oh, can you fix our logo? 
is probably yeah. not going to be the most successful client for you if you have this really kind of holistic approach to design where you know that every different element feeds into it. So I think it's figuring out the kind of people that you want to work with because then pitching to those kind of people is always easier because you're starting on the same mm. sort of playing field. Whereas I think if you're trying to pitch to someone who doesn't see, you know, lots of people say to us, no one reads a caption on Instagram post. If you're trying to pitch a social strategy to that person that doesn't believe that captions don't matter, as a content agency, it's going to be so hard to pitch that person anyway. So I think it's figuring out really early on the kind of people that you want to work with and the kind of businesses, because you know then that you're going to kind of match with them. I think the other thing is at the beginning we didn't put that much into the design of our pictures and that kind of stuff. And actually yeah, we saw... just got a pitch deck and it's made so much difference just in terms yeah. of how you're... Yeah. yeah, so we just got the designer who did our website to do templates and before we were using Google Slides, I mean, for like 18 months and they just look... Looking back now, I'm kind of embarrassed that we did that for so long, but it just makes such a difference having it looking like it's really slick, essentially. Yeah. And um, I think that's the thing of being like a small agency or a small business or whatever you always just have to act like you're on the same level as the <laughs> big guys so it's we would kind of think that oh we only do words and they know that we're a small agency so we'll kind of put something together on this but actually when you're in a mm. pile next to all these other bigger more experienced agencies you want to have at least a mm. chance of going up against them um yeah. so it's just displaying a level of professionalism when you pitch and I think as not talking too much at the beginning about process and all of that type of stuff because everyone wants yeah. to know what your process is and how you kind of approach things. But I think in your first pitch, getting people just get excited about ideas mm -hmm. and kind of creative <laughs> concepts and then you can do all of that later. Yeah. I think um, also going in with, because we've spoken quite a lot about having a point of view in your copy. I think if you go into a proposal or an email conversation with a kind of critical opinion on what a brand is doing anyway, I mean, it's a bit of a risky one, I guess, because some people might not like it. But if you're like, Actually, we've noticed that even though you've got some editorial content on your website, your about us is seriously dry. They don't match up. Like, have you thought about, I don't know, creating a tone of voice? So don't be afraid to go in with a bit of a constructive criticism in a way to the way that your product or your service, sorry, can can help them. And we always do that in pictures, actually. Like, yeah, try and be a bit like, this is good, but this isn't working. And then sort of suggest a solution. Mm. I think we've talked a couple of times about community and obviously that's such a big part of Sonder and Tell's, I guess, brand values. And you play such a big emphasis on that. You know, you've got the weekly interviews on your website with different content creators and writers and photographers in your community. Obviously, that's lovely for people to read and people to consume, but that kind of stuff takes time to produce. Mm. And it's the kind of stuff that you've had to hire someone to help with producing. So from a business point of view, what is the sort of point of that? What's the payoff? Mm. Well, th that actually initially started because as we knew we didn't want to be a huge agency, we wanted to basically have this roster of freelance content creators that we could then connect with brands. So the idea was if we're working with a pasta brand, then we take on a food writer. The reality is that we've had to focus on actually growing the business, that we've done a lot of the writing ourselves, but we still have that aspiration that that will almost be like a funnel to connect editorial writers with commercial projects so it kind of started as that but there's also I think because we spend a lot of time telling brands that they should kind of have a culture and have something that they stand for beyond just selling a product 
I think it's also just getting us a reputation of being about good words, good writing, and interviewing so that those people are essentially kind of thought leaders in that space. So just having a reputation for being a words-based agency, it was really important for us to talk to writers, to talk to content creators. Yeah, it's a reason to be talked about, I guess, a little bit, because most agencies aren't really, they don't really have a media presence in that way. Whereas by profiling writers who are in the media and who will then share our photos or our book recommendations from their interviews with us, is just, I guess, also a tactical thing to just kind of keep in the sort of cultural conversation. What does a typical day or week look like for the two of you like what do you spend most of your time doing oh emails we spend quite a lot of time brainstorming creative concepts I think when especially if it's a new project so if it's a new tone of voice piece or a new brand blueprint then we always start with yeah getting a really strong concept the thing that's hard with that is that it can take a day or it can take four days basically to get it two right weeks. yeah um we came in we had work the other sunday for this household products brand that we started work with and we came up with three concepts on a sunday i think because it was the weekend and we were like we don't want to be here so let's do it really quickly but it's quite hard to know how long that process is going to take and then lots of writing basically i guess me maybe more than emmy does more of the project management side so more kind of talking to clients mm-hmm. i do more of like talking to the accountant <laughs> yeah so i think it's a lot of like brainstorming concepts brainstorming a lot around tone of voice like how could different brands speak which i think people don't think about as much as other stuff and then yeah a lot of writing and a lot of emails with a lot of new business meetings as well i think you just have to constantly be meeting potential clients because things take so long to get signed off and it's normally when they do that they want everything tomorrow so it's just kind of making time to connect with new people and just then being prepared to be like oh well they might come back to you in six months or they might not so yeah and what's the most challenging part of what you do I think at the beginning it was the workflow as in it was very up and down and we're I don't think either of us were very good at not being busy so I think when we were busy we were really enjoying it but when things were a lot quieter I think we were a bit like panic stations and just yeah being like what are we doing wrong that sort of thing I think that's eased up now in terms of I think we're on a much more even keel with workflow I think for most agencies it's probably it is that pitching stage especially when you're a new agency that's the most challenging because you feel like you've put so much work into these concepts and these ideas and as Kate said it can take like we started working with a client a year after we pitched them and it just takes such a long time that actually by the time you get it, you're not even that happy that you got it because you feel like it's been such a long process. There's one we're about to start with, which has been 2017, so yeah. two years. <laughs> Stuff takes a long time yeah. in the world of brands. I don't but think, I think yeah. that's what people don't really understand. And I think it takes so much time because also a lot of brands will think, okay, I need storytelling or I need content. Let's reach out to a bunch of agencies put some feelers out and in your mind you're like oh they've picked me they're ready to do this and they're going to sign it off in two months they always tell you that it's you know we want to do this very quickly and then you go through the whole process you're really excited you often get you know we've been taken down paths where we are literally like popping the champagne <laughs> thinking we've got the got the bit <laughs> no no but like mentally oh, popping champagne and it's like gone in the next day so I think it's 
the process of actually getting to the point where you're actually working with the clients and then you feel like you're not actually because mm. in a service-based industry as well you're only learning as much as you're mm. doing obviously you just get better more and more clients you have but then you have to get those clients to actually yeah, it's not like when you have a product that you're constantly iterating on and testing it's like you need to actually be doing the stuff to be getting getting to improving yeah and to have a sort of track record that you can show to other future prospective clients like you need to ship yeah. projects yeah. in order to build your case studies case studies and all of that actually stuff. for me the project management i find really hard as well as in i quite like to be like the doing the creative or writing but actually the management of expectations and that sort of thing has been t- has taken a lot of getting used to i guess when you get bigger you have someone who helps you do that but the kind of day-to-day checking in an admin it's very time consuming yeah and (laughs) And energy draining sometimes as well because we've ended up in a position quite a lot where we're project managing designers as well Mm -hmm. especially when it's startup brands who are looking for a new visual identity as well as a tone of voice and playing that sort of role Mm -hmm. can be tough and are there any big mistakes you've made along the way or lessons that you've learned in the past sort of two years that you've been doing this things that you would have done differently if you'd known the first time around I think working with brands because they had a name versus working with the kind of people that we wanted to work with is kind of what I was talking about before. You have to figure out the kind of people that you know you're going to work well with. At the beginning, we started working with brands because they had a big reputation and they would kind of help ours. But the people running those brands really didn't align with our beliefs as an agency. And we got so far down and it was just watering down our ideas and just not gelling in terms of where. And then by the end of it, you're not even proud of the work that you've done because they've stripped it back so much. So I think figuring out the kind of people that you want to work with rather than Mm. necessarily the brands. Yeah, I think thinking about the culture fit in terms of each project as well, the type of people that you're going to be talking with day to day and making sure you feel like that is good. And also, I think just pushing a bit more, like pushing tones of voice a bit more and asking more questions and getting people to be a bit more challenging and asking them what kind of point of view they could have. Because we started doing that a bit more with brands and I think we didn't probably have the confidence to do that at the beginning but I think when you push words a bit further then you end up with a more interesting concept and that's it for today thank you for tuning in I'll be back next week but for more career inspiration and information in the meantime follow women who at women who on Instagram and Twitter or head to our website www.womenwho.co forward slash newsletter to sign up for our weekly newsletter the roundup you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Otega Uagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review as it helps other people find the podcast. See you next week.